Isaiah chapter 17. Beginning at verse 1. Let's read three verses and then we'll pray and get right into our studies. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They will be flocks. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Shall we pray? Father, grant us wisdom and light and enlightenment to your word this evening through the power of your Holy Spirit. Anoint us, bless us, cleanse us, purify us, Lord. We want to take everything that you have prepared for us into our hearts and into our minds. We may continue to grow in your grace and knowledge, in your wisdom and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we come now to the third oracle or the third burden of Isaiah that prophesies the destruction of Damascus. In reality, the prophecy of doom upon Syria and Ephraim, which is, of course, Israel. Ephraim was the dominant uh, tribe of the northern, of the ten northern tribes that made up Israel. And, uh, and so we find that they actually share in the... Uh, in the burden or the oracle or the judgment, as it were, of Syria. The first oracle, of course, was what we learned in chapter 13 was against Babylon. The second was issued against Moab, which we saw last week in chapters uh, 15 and 16. Damascus is a name that is, is quite prominent in the news today, being that it is the capital of modern Syria as well. It was the capital of ancient Syria. But it is the capital as well of modern Syria, and it's still a, a hostile enemy of Israel. And because of Syria's active and direct involvement with Islamic terrorist organizations, it is politically hostile to the United States of America as well. It is interesting that the two nations, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, were allied in their opposition toward both Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now just to give you some quick background of stuff we've already learned, when Ahaz, or Ahaz was the, was the king of Judah, he was not a good king, and, and he tried to make an alliance with Assyria you know, to make sure that they didn't come down upon, uh, upon that kingdom, and so that made, of course, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel a little bit more um, weighty in their, in their hostility toward those kingdoms. But just as a point of reminder, in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, if you'll just go back a couple of pages there to chapter 7, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. 
And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So the reminder of the connections that were taking place earlier on and are going to be now judged because of those particular alliances. Whether the northern kingdom of Israel was in obedience or not, which of course at this point they weren't, and being in rebelliousness toward God, nonetheless they were still God's people, but they were making alliances with, uh, with the pagans and the heathens uh, from Syria, and so uh, they would also have to share in some of the uh, judgments that were to come upon the enemies of God and of God's people. So the connection now between the two nations existed because of the fact that Syria itself was located northeast of Israel and the northern tribes which were centered around the Sea of Galilee were in constant contact with Syria. And of course I'm speaking about uh, back in uh, the uh, uh, 700s uh, BC of course. And so Isaiah spoke to both nations in this one message warning that the capital of Syria, which is Damascus, would be taken by the enemy. Now in 732 B.C., historically speaking, the Assyrians conquered Aram, or Syria, the land of Syria, under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser, and in following their usual custom, the custom of the Assyrians, when they came into a land, they deported many of the citizens, leaving the land and the cities deserted. From Damascus, which was in the north-central part of Syria, all the way down south to Aroer, uh, which was on the border between Aram or Syria and Moab, as we saw last time, that river, Arnon, which is that border. So all the way down to that, to that place of, uh, of uh, the border between Syria and, and Moab, so most of the land then, they deported the people. The rest were killed, you know, of course, in, in, in battle. So the land itself was desolate, deserted, from the north to the south. If you'll turn for just a moment to 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9, we see here what, what took place. It says, so the king of Assyria heeded him. The king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kir and killed Rezin. And so these things did, in fact, happen. It's substantiated by history as well as by uh, biblical history, of course. <laughs> biblical history will always substantiate secular history. But what is even more interesting is that while Isaiah speaks also, and even more extensively, of Ephraim, the burden mentions only Damascus. And this is probably meant to show that Ephraim who placed themselves as a dependency on a Gentile power. Now remember, Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. They're putting themselves as a dependency on a Gentile power, or as a dependency on a Gentile power. And so therefore, they will also share in its lot. So if the judgment is against Damascus, whoever's allied with them will have also the same judgment. The fact that one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world, uh, Damascus, would be reduced to a heap of ruins didn't bode well for Ephraim. Or for that matter, Samaria, which was of course in the northern kingdom of Israel, since it would suffer its defeat ten years later. 
So in 732, the Assyrians attacked Syria. Ten years later, then the northern kingdom of Israel was taken in the same manner. So first of all, Israel would be stripped of its defenses. If you look at verse 3 now of our text, verses 1 and 2, very very clear, you know, the, the ruin... The ruins that were going to be left in Damascus, the judgment was going to come. It would be the Assyrians. Uh, the cities even in the south were going to be forsaken. Uh, in verse 2, the flocks uh, which lie down, no one will make them afraid because no one would be around. You see, the flocks wouldn't be afraid because there wouldn't be anybody to scare them. But in verse 3, it says the fortress also was, will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So at the same time, Damascus would be stripped of its kingdom and the surviving uh, Syrians would be stripped of their glory. You see the picture here in verse 3 is that the fortresses or the, or, or the defenses of Ephraim would be, would be torn down. The kingdom of Damascus would be stripped of its power and, its, and, and then the people of Syria would be stripped of its glory. So all that was taking place then was this tremendous stripping of what they had as the glory for themselves. Ephraim was proud of their fortresses. Ephraim was proud of the way that they were protecting themselves. But God tore them down through the Assyrians. Damascus was, was that beautiful capital city of Syria. But no longer would it have the rule as it did. Its glory of rule would be taken and stripped. The glory of the people themselves. And what's interesting is the last part of verse 3, where it says, They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, That's an ironic statement. Why? Because the glory of Israel would be taken from them. The glory would depart from Israel because they had taken their eyes off of God. They had taken their hearts away from God. They had put them on idols and the idols of all the surrounding nations. So Ephraim, which was the dominant tribe, as I said before, of the ten northern kingdoms of Israel, would be robbed of its fortified cities. Syria would actually lose its national identity. And the lesson in all of this, folks, the lesson in all of this is be careful who you join yourself to. Be careful of who you join yourself to. You know, these are lessons that even we today in the church are still having to learn. We haven't given our hearts totally to God. We should give our hearts totally to Christ. In fact, when we come to the Lord, we say, Lord, you're the the king who's to reign in my heart now. Reign in my heart. But not that little closet off to the side. Reign in the house of my heart, but there's a little closet there. that I just want it to belong to me. Let it be mine, Lord. And that's where we want to spend our time. You know, this last last Sunday we were were talking about, uh, about the heart. It's either my space or God's place. And, and, uh, and even in, in this life, when we start to compromise with our, with our relationships or compromise with our alliances, as it were, it affects us. It affects us greatly. The Apostle Paul gives us a warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Many of us are familiar with this warning. If you read it in verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A lot of times people use that, you know, in the sense of, of marriage, and, and it's quite proper to do so. But it's in any kind of alliance. It's in any kind of, of uh, yoking together, as it were. 
Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? What business did the northern kingdoms of Israel have with Syria and their pagan gods? What communion has light with darkness? Verse 15, and what accord has Christ with Belial? You could take that word and, and move it from pagan to idol to idol down to what it really meant was, was Satan himself. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? You see the questioning here? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? There's no agreement between the temple of God and idols. You are the temple of the living God. Now he brings it right down to their very faces. Ours too. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. The word separate there is a beautiful word. When you put it together with all the other understandings of what it means to be holy. To be separate, to be set apart from the things of the world and set apart unto God. And he says, they shall be my people, therefore come out from among them. Come out from all of this heathenism, paganism, idol worship. Come out from all of that and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. The warning is given against developing the types of alliances and friendships with unbelievers that will influence believers and bring them down. You know, it's real interesting to me that in over 30-some years of being a believer in Jesus Christ, 35 years of being a believer in Jesus Christ, I've seen people learn the lesson the hard way. People that said, you know, I'm a Christian now, you know, I can go have some friendship with these guys because I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them about the Lord. I'm going to, you know, stand strong. I'm going to be letting them know about Jesus. And they go there for a little while, and all of a sudden, rather than people coming out of what they are, what they're in, the Christian is sucked back into the world. Too many times I've seen that. Very rarely do I see that they pull people out. The idea is that we can if the Lord is calling us to do it and we ought to do it only because the Lord calls us to do it and do it in His power, do it in His might, do it in His wisdom and do it in His time. But for the most part, we have to be careful. It could happen in marriages, it could happen in business affiliations and the like. Now, it doesn't mean that believers aren't to make contact with unbelievers. Of course not. But it is for us to express the love of Christ to them. It is for us to draw them ever closer to Jesus. But not by doing the things that they do. Because, folks, we've been there already. And we know what those things did to us when we were in the world, and we don't want to go back to that. So we have to stay strong, we have to stay different, and we have to be different. But we don't go into that particular kind of situation to downgrade anybody. We go in there to say, look, this is where I was, but notice something has changed. Not because I've done it, but because Christ has done it. We are to be a light in the darkness. We are to be the salt with the decaying earth. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. He's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to us. You are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden.
And I think that just juxtaposition that the Lord gives us in that particular statement, a city on a hill cannot be hit. We need to be above all of these things, but not above the people in the sense that we look condescendingly down at them, but above all of what the world is. We're not in the muck and the mire where we were before. We're not to be in the muck and the mire where we were before. I just love those words, muck and mire. I don't like what they represent. It just sounds good, muck and mire. I was going to say it sounds like a law firm, but not really. I'm just kidding. I love, I love lawyers. Okay. Just kidding. Our witness of Jesus Christ is never to be compromised. Our witness of Jesus Christ is never to be compromised. And how sad it is that the whole northern kingdom of Israel had gone so far from God. And they started making alliances with the unbelievers. They started making alliances with, with the, the foreign uh, uh, nations that were pagan worshippers. Folks, all you got to do is look down through the ages from that point to today. And even though the names have changed, and even though the, some of the religious names have changed, you know what? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. The people who espouse the, the uh, Islamic belief in the Islamic faith do not be fooled that it's just the same God with another name. Allah is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not. Those people have a tremendous hatred for Israel. They have a tremendous hatred for Christians. We need to love them through the love of Christ. That's for another time and another discussion. But the point of the matter is we have to be careful. And as nations, people have not been killed. And so we've seen the things that we've seen in the last five, six years. But it's been happening down through the ages. Getting back to Isaiah 17, verse 4 now, it says, In that day, and that's always a significant phrase in the Bible, especially prophetically, in that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane. The glory of Jacob will fade away. In other words, are you all familiar with the word Ichabod? Ichabod. Some of us may have heard the story or read the story of Ichabod Crane. The word Ichabod is a Hebrew word. It means the glory departed. The glory has departed. And this is talking about the glory of Jacob. Jacob being who? Jacob being Israel. And it says that the glory of Jacob will wane. In other words, it will fade. And the fatness of his flesh grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and, the, and reaps the head, heads with his arm. It shall be as he, he who gathers head of grain in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of the giants. Not the jolly green giant, but the valley of Rephaim. This is actually the valley where David slew Goliath. And yet gleaning grace will be left in it like, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the up, uppermost bough, four or five in his most fruitful branches. In other words, you know, where there's hundreds, if not thousands of of olives and all these trees. Now there's only just, you can count them in your hand. Three or four, two or three, four or five. You see, the consequences of Ephraim yoking itself to the Syrians are found in this passage. At this point, Isaiah is now refocusing his attention and he moves from emphasizing Damascus to concentrating on Ephraim. The glory, the riches, the power that the northern kingdom of Israel possessed under Jeroboam II and somewhat after him, will lose its entire strength and turn into poverty. 
Uh, and this was, this, was going to, this was going to happen when the kingdoms divided, of course, all the way back to the son of, of, uh, of Solomon, three of them. And we know that all of the kings, all the kings of the northern uh, kingdom, of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, when you read them in the, in the study of the book of Kings, you realize that all the kings of the northern kingdom were all bad kings. There was not one good king among them all. So where was it going to go? It was going to go south, as it were. Well, using that terminology, it was, it was going down. And, and somewhat after him, it's going to, it was going to lose its entire strength, turn into poverty, and it will be like a body that wastes away by disease. This is implied in this. The fatness of his flesh grew lean. The idea is that, that, that this was like a body that was wasting away by disease. Some of us have seen family members and friends going through that particular uh, situation in, in, in our lifetime. It's been a bad, very sad thing. I, I saw my own brother just waste away from somebody who was a, a Marine sergeant in, in Vietnam back in the 60s. Uh, back in 1990, passed away. Just, it just began to just deteriorate because of a, of a disease that he had. Wasted away. Nothing you could do. About it. Brings up a couple of verses to review for us. Go back, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 8 through 10. Again, just as a point of review. Because these things were already mentioned. These things were already going to happen. And notice that you'll see that it says there in verse 8, the Lord sent a word against Jacob and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Yet God is saying to them, what? Yeah, when it, you're going to have nothing. And your pride is not going to be able to do anything to bring it back up. Your arrogance is not going to do anything to build it back up. And, you know, that's, a lesson, that's another lesson for us in that, you know, sometimes we, we approach life with some sort of pride and arrogance about the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, I can make it. I can make it on my own. I can make it. Uh, you know, I don't care what any, anybody does to me. I can get up. I can dust myself off and I can keep going on. And, you know, some people have in this life. But when God takes it from you, because of disobedience or because of some kind of rebelliousness, when God takes it, eventually let's just put it on the, on the people that are wicked and will never come to know Christ. What's going to happen to them? They're going to have all their riches here, but one day they will lose it all and they'll never get it back, but they're going to lose the worst part about it. They're going to be separated from God for eternity. And then what will pride bring to them? And then what will pride do? In Isaiah 10, verse 16, it says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among His fat ones, and under His glory He will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. He'll send leanness. And all of this about His people. It's all about His own people. They rejected Him. He said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll give you everything that you need. He gave them ample ideas and ample thoughts about this when He took the children of Israel out of Egypt and provided for them for 40 years through the wilderness. Everything that they needed, food, water, every time they needed it, God gave it to them. And what did they do every time God gave it to them? Not long afterwards, they would complain. They would criticize. They would murmur. 
They were ungrateful. Does it reflect uh, anything that we are today with, with all that God has given us? And just as a reaper holds the grain stalks in his left arm and cuts the grain with his sickle in his right hand, so shall Israel be mowed down by judgment. This is the picture of verses 4 through 6. The glory has departed, Ichabod. Kabod is, is, is the word for glory, God's glory. So Ichabod means that the glory has left, the glory has departed, the sick soul is wasting away, and the gleaning of the harvest is small. Something will be left, but not much. Two, three, olives on one tree, four or five in another. That's not a lot, is it? Only a few uh, stalks will remain for the harvester in the fields that were once full. Or it will be like the olive harvest where it was customary to pick the olives at the bottom and to beat down those at the top. But only a very few will remain as a remnant. All this, already, this, this happened already in the near fulfillment of this prophecy. Remember, there's another, another Syria to come. It's, it's here now. These prophecies will actually extend to the coming of the Lord. And Israel will once again need to be awakened to the coming of their Messiah, who, by the way, has already come once. And he's coming again. It would be good at this point to consider this remnant that is distinguished in many of the books of the prophets and comes before us clearly again in the New Testament as well. Because without a remnant, there is no godly company that will turn to the Lord in the last days. There has to be a remnant. There has to be a remnant. There's a remnant in Israel today. Jewish people are back in their, in their land. That is a sign that God is working His work out. His, God is working out His Word already. He's working it out today. Those of us that have been to Israel and have seen the land and seen the people there, it, it is a miracle. It is a miracle. And I'll tell you this, it is a miracle that they were there in 1948 as becoming a nation. And it is a miracle that on the day after that, they're still there. That may sound funny, but it's not funny. Because the very next day after they became a nation, the Arab nation surrounded Israel, ready to throw them into the sea. And they've been fighting for existence ever since. And God has had his hand upon his people because God put them there. There still is people. They're still rebellious. They're still not seeing everything the way they need to. But this is what it says in Romans. Listen carefully. Without a remnant, there's no godly company that will turn to the Lord in the last days. But Paul says this, Romans 11, verse 5. And I encourage you, if you will, to read Romans 9 through 11, the three chapters. They're all about Israel. Read them. But it says in Romans 11, verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's God's hand. That's God's grace. That's God's choosing. And in verses 25, jump down to verse 25. It says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We're almost there, folks. Their blindness is still there. Have they, have they as a people received their Messiah yet? No, not yet. Have individual Jews, individual people who are who are Jewish people, have they received Christ? Many have. Many have come to their Messiah. 
but not as a nation and not as a majority of people. But it's coming. The fullness of the Gentiles, that's, that's, we're, we're, we're almost to that point. But the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's, it, it's the time of the Gentiles right now, still. The fullness of it means it's completion. And so all Israel will be saved. Now don't be confused by that statement. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It has to be remembered that they are not all Israel which are Israel. The Bible says this. It is the remnant in whom God recognizes the true seed of Jacob. The true seed. So not all Israel, or they are not all Israel which are Israel. It's still of the heart. Remember this, circumcision was what? About the heart. Not about the physical body so much. Circumcision was applied to the physical body, but it was about the heart. You read Deuteronomy, you read uh, Jeremiah, you realize when it talks about circumcision, it talks about the heart. It talks about Israel, it talks about Israel who, you know, not all Israel is Israel. Why? Because it is a matter of the heart, not just of being born into that race of people. It helps. <laughs> but you've got to believe. They will be preserved, we're told in the Scriptures. They will be preserved in the last days from trouble as they were in the past. And through them, the land is and will be inhabited. Through Israel, the land is now and will be inhabited when Christ comes. Now, there are some sad things between here, between now and then. I've mentioned this in, in various teachings. I'm going to talk a lot more about it in, in, in the next few weeks as we head into the new year. And we're going to deal with some prophetic issues as we head to the new year and the New Year's Eve and all of that. We're going, to, we're going to have some special services. We're just going to have a prophecy of what's going on in, in the world today and what's happening. Is, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell you what day Jesus is coming because I don't know. That's not what it's about. But it's, it's putting together everything that's going on in the world today and seeing what the Bible is saying and seeing how it's all coming to pass. We need to keep getting our eyes open. The Bible says that we need to keep looking up because His, His redemption draws near. And we need to be ready for that. But we need to understand here, you see. The Lord is coming. We want to be ready. He could come at any moment. He could come tonight. Praise the Lord if He did. But will we be ready for the coming of the Lord? Well, let's go on. I could go on and on about that, but... Uh, as a matter of fact, the next portion here, verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 17, give us an indication of this in the, in the remnant. It says, In that day a man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. You see, for the surviving remnant, there is still a promise to be realized in the way of repentance. There is still a promise as they come in repentance. Painful experience being their teacher. They will turn to the true and the living God who is their maker, the Holy One of Israel, and they will renounce everything that has to do with idolatry. Very, very much like we did when we came to Christ. 
thing. We, we don't think about it in these terms. But when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and we made him our, you know, we don't make him our Lord and Savior. He's already Lord. But, you know, he just, we want him to be our Savior. But when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we were in, in essence saying, I'm giving up the things of, of the world. I'm giving up my idolatry. The worship of, of the things that I made, the worship of the things that I had, the worship of the things that I saw in the mirror. Because that was idolatry. We love self more than we love God. And whether we said it or not, we were gods in our eyes. Yeah, we doll ourselves up fierce. <laughs> Some of us needed it. <laughs> I should speak for myself. Verse 8 says, He will not look to the altars, the work of His hands. You see, instead of trusting in their fortresses, which were laid waste anyway, they'll go back to trusting in the Lord. That is, this is what it's saying. Here's a promise for this surviving remnant. The words used in verse 8 refer to the worship of Baal or Baal. Groves. Uh, the, the word is, is, is found here, the, the altars. They call them groves. It's a word, Asherah, which comes from the uh, Babylonian word, Astarte, a Babylonian Canaanite goddess of fortune and happiness. The word images that is used here is the word Haman. Some people believe that from that word comes the word shaman. You know, I think you apply, apply that to you know, some kind of a spirit leader of some sort. But uh, it's, it's the word image. It's an idol. Incense altar. It's a sun pillar. It's a, a various number of things that they worship. They took that from the Babylonians. You see, they had a God that didn't present himself. And he says, don't make, any, don't make any images of me. You worship me in spirit and in truth. And they would see everybody else and they could see their idols. Well, we, we can see that. We want to worship Him. God says, I'll be, I'll be with you as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's all you've got to see. But if you see me, you'll die. But now they're, giving, they're going to give it up. They're going to say, it's it. I'm, going to, I'm just going to not respect these things. You know, these two verses remind me of our culture today. We wouldn't normally think this way, okay? So just understand this. But the achievements of man, the achievements of man are often treated as idols. And the deification of man, in other words, man making himself God is becoming more and more widespread than we would have ever imagined. Notwithstanding the new, new age movement of a few years ago that you don't hear much of, but it's still very present today. And unfortunately, in many areas of the church, it's present there too. The man is saying, you know, hey, listen, you know, doesn't the Bible say that we're gods too? Actually, it doesn't. It uses the term from the standpoint of the use of Elohim being judges, but it's used in a negative context, not in a positive context. And you know why? Because God's trying to save us. The Bible says there's only one God, and he's, He alone should be worshipped. And anybody who teaches that we're little gods is teaching false doctrine. Pure and simple. The achievements of man. Listen, 
Have we boasted? Have we not boasted that we've gone to the moon? Have we not boasted that we can go into into space? I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to downplay all these things, but you know, it, we we begin to say, look at look at the things that we've done. I mean, we you know, it used to take you know days on end to go from from west coast to east coast or east coast to west coast, and now you can do it in a day. You know, we you know we fly and, and we have all this all this technology. We take we take and think that this is what makes us great. But if these particular thoughts are in some way weaving themselves into the fiber of the church, I mean, we're really in for big trouble. Because we're there already. And Paul saw that 2,000 years ago, and he, and he brought the message to us today in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-5, through 5, when he says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, which means arrogant, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But notice the next phrase, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And, and that's what, what, what burdens my heart about the church. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. You see, there are, there are those who, who deny the, the true power of God. They place that power upon themselves. They say, you know, I'm the one that's, that's making it. I'm the one that's, you know, that, that can... You know, I've seen these people on TV and there's all of this stuff on TV and infomercials and you can walk on hot coals, you know, and you can, you can do it, you know. I think it's stupid to walk on hot coals, but actually, I'd rather just walk to the refrigerator and get a soda or something. I have to walk on him. Crazy what people are trying to think about themselves. And what we need to do is bow our faces before God, Almighty God, who gave us the life that we have and has given it to us abundantly to live for Christ. And, and Christ to just rejoice in Him and to love Him and to live humbly and walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just to love for the love of Christ. So different. Got to go on because I'm running out of time. We got a lot of pages. Isaiah 17, verse 9, it says, In that day his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough and an, up, an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. There you, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruin in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. The prophet Isaiah returns to the announcement of doom and destruction. The cities will be cut to pieces like a tree branch that has been chopped to pieces. In other words, the same cities that the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hivites deserted when Israel conquered the land will be deserted by the Israelites when the Assyrians conquer them. The very same land. And why would all this happen? Why is this happening? Very simply, it tells us because God's people had forgotten Him and turned to foreign alliances, foreign religions, and foreign customs. In effect, the harvest would be disastrous. Oh, they would plant. Oh, they would see some flourishing go on. But as soon as they would harvest, what? Nothing would be there. 
You see how ironic it is that when we think that we have something to do with growth, when we have something to do with success. Folks, success is not based upon what we do. Success is based upon our obedience to Christ. Our success is based upon our obedience to God and to His Word. Jeremiah the prophet, you know, we, we would think that with all the preaching going on in Jeremiah's life, he would have had thousands of converts, not one. But why was Jeremiah successful? Because he obeyed God. He did what he was called to do. And there were times when Jeremiah didn't want to do it. But he obeyed God. There's times when in our flesh we don't want to do what God wants us to do. But you know what? When we get up and do it, God is honored and glorified. Besides, he knows our flesh anyway. You know, we may not actively desire to forget God. We may not get up in the morning and say, you know, today I think I'll forget God. You know, we don't do that. But oftentimes even Christians begin to turn to things other uh, begin to turn to things other than the Lord, either for some sort of satisfaction, you know, or or some relief from some certain hurts or certain pains, and we think, Well, God doesn't care about this and I'm just gonna I need satisfaction in my life. I need to go out, I need to find that satisfaction somewhere. I haven't found it with the Lord. You know, people sometimes go back to drugs, they go back to alcohol, or even any kind of other stimulus that will only make matters worse physically and emotionally, not to mention spiritually. But I think of Psalm 103, verses 1-5, through 5, the Psalm of David that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Folks, those things that we turn to in this life don't heal us. God does. Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth. Folks, He's the satisfaction. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Back in the 60s, we used to hear a song by the Rolling Stones called I I Can't Get No Satisfaction. They're still singing it after, what, 95 years? And as long as they keep their eyes off of Jesus Christ, they'll never get satisfaction. And they're going to look, you know, they they already look like they're 150 years old. I really do. I mean, I'll look at them and think, man, they're bouncing around with all those wrinkles and falling apart. And I thought, you know what the thought came to mind? These guys sang a song back in, in, back in the 60s. They wrote a song called Sympathy for the Devil. It was a song about the devil singing, you know, that he was the one that put Jesus on the cross. It was almost to say that he was the one that was victorious, not Jesus. But you see, these foolish people think in that way and don't realize that when Jesus died on the cross, that was our victory. I keep looking at them all old and you know, bouncing around. And, and, but, you know, people say, well, look at them. They're still, you know what? It's like Dorian Gray. You heard the story of Dorian Gray? A young man that had his picture painted, you know. And he stayed himself, youthful, in the picture. 
was the one that got old, ugly. Every time he became worse and worse in his heart, he stayed young. He stayed youthful. The person who painted the picture tried to get him to repent because his picture got worse and worse. He kills the artist. He never listens to what he says, but he looks at the picture. And he stabs at the picture. And in effect, he kills himself. That's what happens when we take our eyes off of God and, or, or decide that you know we're, we're greater than God, we're greater than Christ. Unless they've come to Christ, where are these people now? Or where are they, where are they going to be? Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9 says, All that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. God is our satisfaction. Christ is our satisfaction. i got to hurry. In this next section, <laughs> the prophet foretells of God destroying the nation that brings destruction on Syria and Israel. Who would that be? Assyria. Look at verses 12 through 14. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. You'll notice that word rush a lot here. Uh, the, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. This rather poetic description of the armies of Assyria begins with the sound of the advancing troops like the roar of mighty waters. There's a lot of prophetic consistencies in this kind of writings, because in, consider, if you will, Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, where it says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea. You see, that's the connection. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, the wicked. So that's a connection, you see, that when he uses that roar of these mighty uh, mighty seas or the roar of the, of the, of the mighty uh, uh, waters, they're troubled waters. They're not good waters. The Lord utters one word. The Lord utters one word and all of it blows away like chaff driven by the wind when, when there is a threshing on the hills, you know. And they're out there threshing grain and they throw up the grain and, and, and you know, uh, they, they've already crushed it out and they, they're throwing this so that the wind will take the chaff away and what falls to the ground is, is the wheat or the corn. Or like the tumbleweeds or whirling uh, uh, leaves before a storm. The winds come, you know, all those things. I mean, around here we see a lot of tumbleweeds. You know. Well, we used to see a lot more. Now that everything's growing out here and stuff. But boy, you could just see all these big, huge tumbleweeds. I remember one that looked like the size of a truck one time crossing the road. Huge. But there is one comforting principle to mention here. That even in the midst of judgment, God will show mercy. That even in the midst of judgment, God will show mercy. As bad as it was going to be for Israel, it could have been a lot worse. In other words, the Lord will allow it for a time and then rebuke those attacking Israel. It is important to note that Israel was not at the mercy of circumstances or even the enemies. They were at the mercy of God. Israel was at the mercy of God. Psalm 9 verse 13 says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. 
That was one man saying that, but that, that was representative of, of the whole nation. If they would cry out to God as a people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their sin and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The Lord knows how to take care of His own. Isaiah 54, verse 17. Now, people have used this verse and, and taken it, I mean, totally out of context and taken it to mean just protection for themselves because, you know, they want to say, hey, you know, I'm God's, I'm God's anointed and you can't touch me. Well, yeah, we can't touch you because you're teaching false doctrine. That's some of them, not everybody. But in Isaiah 54, verse 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. And so there's the hope coming at the end of 17. But as we enter into chapter 18, we're introduced now to what appears to be a message to Ethiopia, but as we shall see, it is a message to unnamed lands in what appears to be Africa. Uh, so follow along with me, because this has been described by many commentators as one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to actually exposit. And, and I'll tell you why. You'll see why in a moment. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Woe to the land that shadowed with buzzing wings. Already I'm like, whoa, what's that about? Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reeds on the water, save ghosts with messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. At this point, we should just go home. <laughs> What is this? <laughs> but the key phrase to understanding this passage is this. Which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia? Which is beyond the rivers? Most commentators call this chapter a judgment on Ethiopia, citing that buzzing wings are indicative of the many insects and locusts and birds in the land of Ethiopia. And while that may be true, another problem pops up that mentions sending ambassadors by sea either to Israel or to other African nations seeking alliances to protect them from Assyria. But I have to look at Acts chapter 8 to, to help us to see the mode of transportation that can be taken from Ethiopia to Jerusalem because many say that this, these are messengers going to Jerusalem. Well, let me look at this. Acts 8 says in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go to the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, not his boat, his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his boat. No, his chariot. You see, the most direct route from Ethiopia to Jerusalem wasn't over sea, but over land. There is another interesting theory about this chapter and, and the identification of this unnamed land, some actually believe, listen, some actually believe that it is speaking of the United States of America. And you know, you have to kind of think, you know, this is interesting. I mean, I, I, mean, I have to say it's a stretch, but it's interesting. Uh, for a moment, consider, if you will, consider that before air travel, any visits to and from the Holy Land, any visits to Europe or, you know, uh, Middle East or whatever, uh, could only be accomplished by sea. The USA is definitely, as it is quoted, beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. <laughs> All right. 
the description in verse 2 of, quote, a people terrible from their beginning onward. You know what that literally means. It implies that from its beginning, this nation has never been defeated in war. And our land is divided to a certain extent by rivers. Think about it. Many states are divided by rivers. Even the river, the Rio Grande, right? It kind of divides us from Mexico. The Mississippi divides east and west. So to speak, you know, we have other rivers and tributaries and all. The, the rivers up in the north, uh, northeast area, they were so prominent during the time of the Industrial Revolution and all that. So, I mean, you know, you, you start thinking, what this could possibly be? But one last thing. The words for tall and smooth of skin. Because in the King James Version, it says scattered and peeled. They're tall and smooth of skin. can also be translated to be developed and independent. We're pretty well developed and we're pretty independent. As a matter of fact, we're very independent in that most of the world hates us as a nation. And so these things can work toward confusing the issues of this short chapter. But I mentioned that. I think it's just an interesting thing for us to realize how people can look at the Scripture and say, you know, there's a possibility here that this might be referring to that because a lot of people are asking, well, is America in prophecy? Well, I don't know that it's right here. But as far as Ethiopia is concerned, it is quite possible that beyond the rivers actually refers to the fact that in 715 B.C., which is around the, again, around the time that these prophecies would be falling into place in the near fulfillment, an Ethiopian named Shabako, or in some uh, historical documents, his name was Tirhaka, gained control of Egypt until 633 B.C. He actually was the pharaoh of Egypt. He was an Ethiopian when the throne was regained by a native Egyptian in 633. So there was the reign over Egypt, there was also the very fact that uh, uh, during this period the, uh, of time included uh, uh, Ethiopia included Sudan as well as Somalia. Those were all part of Ethiopia. So that's beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. So now the picture may make more sense if, if we do see that their ambassadors in their light swift boats, because that's what the reeds uh, boats were about, they were light swift boats going to other nations now for help. And, and this is what it says there in verse 2. And, and, and so God tells them to go back home. Because he's going to deal with Assyria himself. Apart from the help of any army. So now we continue on to the very end of the chapter. I'll do this very quickly because there's no, not a whole lot of things, you know, other than the very fact that these are all going to be uh, fulfilled in, in, prof in prophecy. Or have been fulfilled in the near fulfillment. Will be fulfilled in the far. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth. When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the, so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And that might sound good, but that's not real good, by the way. I'll explain in a moment. In verse 5 it says, For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountains, or for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin. And you'll notice this is uh, 
poetic because we see the very same words in verse 2 as we do in verse 7. And from a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. Very quickly. In contrast to the frenzied and anxious activity of men on earth, we see the unruffled, calm patience of God in heaven as he awaits for the right time to reap the harvest of judgment. That's why it says there in verse 4, I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place. God is not in a hurry. He does everything on time, all the time, never out of time. And verse 4 sounds, like I said, sounds pretty good, the last part of it, but in fact it's not good. Why? Because you see, dew is good in its right time, but not in the heat of harvest. Dew in the heat of harvest would be destructive to the crops. Notice that that's when he says he comes. Damage is implied, and this is what we see in the next verses. Assyria is pictured as a ripening vine that will never survive, but God would cut it down. In verse 6, Isaiah describes the feast for the birds of prey and the beasts of the earth. The corpses of 185 Assyrian soldiers, which we've talked about before. Isaiah 37, verse 36, gives us that uh, verse. It says, The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. And this is now that feast that he lays out for the birds of prey and the beasts of the field. But understand this, that this is going to happen again. Revelation 19, verse 17 and following says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, <clears throat> that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. In other words, the beast, Antichrist, against God and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's describing Armageddon. It is the thought that verse 7 points to the Ethiopians as going to Jerusalem with gifts for the Lord and for the King of Judah. When the Messianic Kingdom is established, the Gentile nations will go to Mount Zion to worship the Lord and to bring Him gifts. We see this very clearly in Isaiah 60, verses 3-6. through 6. The Gentiles will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitudes of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Lastly, Zechariah 14, doing this faster, we can finish it. Zechariah 14, verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth did not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. I can assure you very quickly here that uh, to this day there have been there have been quite a, a number of Ethiopians, many of them Jews, many of them have left Ethiopia and today are living in Jerusalem, living in Israel actually throughout the whole land of Israel and, ser- and in their hearts serving God and certainly you know, they're awaiting uh, Messiah. We talked about Syria earlier. Syria today is, is quite active in, in world uh, politics. Uh, they still hate Israel for taking the Golan Heights and uh, will do anything to get the Golan Heights back. Israel will not give up the Golan Heights because it's a, it's a, uh, it's a security risk to do so. Um, do these prophecies point to that, uh, to a time in the future where these nations will be dealt with? It, it does. What we've seen about Babylon in chapters 13 and following in, in Moab and last uh, in chapters 15 and 16. All that is out of near fulfillment. There will be a prophet. God is faithful to his word. And so as we just laid this out as quickly as we could, I'm taking a little extra time, but um, it's important to see how faithful God is to his word and that he, he will keep his word in prophecy. Shall we pray?